Chapter Fifty Four of David Elginbrod. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. David Elginbrod by George MacDonald. Chapter Fifty Four. Sunday Evening. Now resteth in my memory but this point, which indeed is the chief to you of all others which is the choice of what men you are to direct yourself to for it is certain no vessel can leave a worse taste in the liquor it contains than a wrong teacher infects an unskilful hearer with that which hardly will ever out but you may say how shall i get excellent men to take pains to speak with me truly in few words either by much expense or much humbleness Letter of Sir Philip Sidney to his brother Robert. How many things which, at the first moment, strike us as curious coincidences, afterward become so operative on our lives, and so interwoven with the whole web of their histories, that instead of appearing any more as strange accidents, they assume the shape of unavoidable necessities, of homely, ordinary, lawful occurrences, as much in their own place as any shaft or pinion of a great machine. It was dusk before Hugh turned his steps homeward. He wandered along, thinking of Euphra and the Count and the stolen rings. He greatly desired to clear himself to Mr. Arnold. He saw that the nature of the ring tended to justify Mr. Arnold's suspicions, for a man who would not steal for money's worth might yet steal for value of another sort, addressing itself to some peculiar weakness and Mr. Arnold might have met with instances of this nature in his position as magistrate. He greatly desired, likewise, for Euphra's sake, to have Funkelstein in his power. His own ring was beyond recovery, but if, by its means, he could hold such a lash over him as would terrify him from again exercising his villainous influences on her, he would be satisfied. While plunged in this contemplation, he came upon two policemen talking together, he recognized one of them as a Scotchman from his speech. It occurred to him at once to ask his advice in a modified manner, and a moment's reflection convinced him that it would at least do no harm. He would do it. It was one of those resolutions at which one arrives by an arrow flight of the intellect. "'You are a countryman of mine, I think,' said he, as soon as the two had parted. "'If you are a Scotchman, sir, maybe I, maybe no.' Where came ye from, man? Ow, Aberdeen, I wa. It's mine own calf country, and what do they call ye? They call me John MacPherson. My name's Sutherland. Eh, man, it's my own mother's name. Give us a grip of your hand, Master Sutherland. Eh, man, he repeated, shaking Hugh's hand with vehemence. I have no doubt, said Hugh, relapsing into English, that we are some cousins or other. It's very lucky for me to find a relative, for I wanted some advice. He took care to say advice, which a Scotchman is generally prepared to bestow of his best. Had it been sixpence, the cousinship would have required elaborate proof, before the treaty could have made further progress. I'm fully at your service, sir. When will you be off duty? At nine o'clock, precisely. Come to number thirteen, square, and ask for me. It's not far. With pleaser, sir, given toward twice as far. You would not have ventured to ask him to his house on Sunday night, 
when no refreshments could be procured, had he not remembered a small pig, Angliche, stone bottle, of real mountain dew, which he had carried with him when he went to Arnstead, and which had lain unopened in one of his boxes. Miss Talbot received her lodger with more show of pleasure than usual, for he came lapped in the odour of the deacon's sanctity. But she was considerably alarmed and beyond measure shocked when the policeman called and requested to see him. Sally had rushed in to her mistress in dismay. Please, um, there's a policeman wants Mr. Sutherland. Oh, Lorum. Well, go and let Mr. Sutherland know, you stupid girl, answered her mistress, trembling. Oh, Lorum, was all Sally's reply as she vanished to bear the awful tidings to Hugh. He can't have been housebreaking already, said Miss Talbot to herself, as she confessed afterwards. But it may be forgery or embezzlement. I told the poor deluded young man that the way of transgressors was hard. Please, sir, you're wanted, sir, said Sally out of breath, and pale as her Sunday apron. Who wants me? asked Hugh. Please, sir, the policeman, sir, answered Sally, and burst into tears. He was perfectly bewildered by the girl's behaviour, and said in a tone of surprise, "'Well, show him up, then.' "'Oh, sir,' said Sally, with a plutonic sigh, and began to undo the hooks of her dress, "'if you wouldn't mind, sir, just put on my frock and apron, and take a jug in your hand, and the policeman'll never look at you. I'll take care of everything till you come back, sir.' And again she burst into tears. Sally was a great reader of the Family Herald, and knew that this was an orthodox plan of rescuing a prisoner. The kindness of her anxiety moderated the expression of Hugh's amusement, and having convinced her that he was in no danger, he easily prevailed upon her to bring the policeman upstairs. Over a tumbler of toddy, the weaker ingredients of which were procured by Sally's glad connivance, with the lingering idea of propitiation, and a gentle hint that Mrs. Mustn't Know, the two Scotchmen, seated at opposite corners of the fire, had a long chat. They began about the old country and the places and people they both knew and both didn't know. If they had met on the shores of the central lake of Africa, they could scarcely have been more cow-feet together. At length Hugh referred to the object of his application to Miss Pearson. "'What plan would you have me pursue, John, to get hold of a man in London?' I could manage that for you, sir. I can mouse the hail mengi of the detectives. But you see, unfortunately, I don't wish, for particular reasons, that the police should have anything to do with it. Ay, ay, hm, hm. I see, Brawley. You'll be after a stray sheep, Nedoot. Hugh did not reply, so leaving him to form any conclusion he pleased. You see, MacPherson continued. It's new that easy to a body that's new up to the trade. Have you only clue like to set ye a spearin upon? Not the least. The man pondered a while. I have it, he exclaimed at last. What a fool I was not to think of that afore. Given it be a poor bit yow lammy like at year after, I'll tell you what, there's a man, a countryman of our own, and gentleman forby, that'll do more for ye in that way, nor all the detectives together, and that's Robert Falconer, Esquire. I ken him weel. But I don't, said Hugh. But I'll introduce you till him. He bides close in hand here, round two corners just, and I'm thinking he'll be at home the new, 
for I saw him goin' that get afore ye came up to me. An' the sooner we gang, the better, for he's no eye to be gotten hold of. Fags, he may be in the shoreditch or this. But will he not consider it an intrusion? Nay, nay, there's no fear o' that. He's only man's a ilka woman's friend. So be he can do them a good turn, but he's no for drinkin' and daffin' in that. Come away, Master Sutherland, he's your very man. Thus urged, Hugh rose and accompanied the policeman. He took him round rather more than two corners, but within five minutes they stood at Mr. Falconer's door. John rang. The door opened without visible service, and they ascended to the first floor, which was enclosed something after the Scotch fashion. Here a respectable-looking woman awaited their ascent. "'Is Mr. Falconer at home, ma'am?' said Hugh's guide. "'He is, but I think he's just going out again.' We tell him, ma'am, at who John MacPherson, the policeman, would like sore to see him. I will, she answered, and went in, leaving them at the door. She returned in a moment, and inviting them to enter, ushered them into a large bare room, in which there was just light enough for Hugh to recognize, to his astonishment, the unmistakable figure of the man whom he had met in Whitechapel, and whom he had afterwards seen apparently watching him from the gallery of the Olympic Theatre. "'How are you, MacPherson?' said a deep, powerful voice out of the gloom. "'Very well, I thank you, Mr. Falconer. Who are ye yourself, sir?' "'Very well, too, thank you. Who is with you?' "'It's a gentleman, sir, by the name of Mr. Sutherland. What wants your help, sir, about somebody or other at he's interested in what's disappeared?' Falconer advanced, and, bowing to Hugh, said very graciously, I shall be most happy to serve Mr. Sutherland, if in my power. Our friend MacPherson has rather too exalted an idea of my capabilities, however. Weel, Master Falconer, I only despair at yourself, whether or no ye was ever doing with anything ye took in hand. Falconer made no reply to this. There was the story of a whole life in his silence, past and to come. He merely said, you can leave the gentleman with me, then, John. I'll take care of him. No fear of that, sir. Deal a bit, though, and the policeman in London wore after him. I'm much obliged to you for bringing him. The obligation's mine, sir, and the gentleman's. Good night, sir. Good night, Mr. Sutherland. You'll ken war to find me, given you want me. Yon's my beat for another fortnight. And you know my quarters, said Hugh, shaking him by the hand. I am greatly obliged to you. Not a bit, sir, or given you were, ye should be hardly welcome. Bring candles, Mrs. Ashton, Falconer called from the door. Then turning to Hugh, sit down, Mr. Sutherland, he said. If you can find a chair that is not illegally occupied already, perhaps we had better wait for the candles. What a pleasant day we have had. Then you have been more pleasantly occupied than I have, thought Hugh, to whose mind returned the images of the Appleditch family in its drawing-room, followed by the anticipation of the distasteful duties of the morrow. But he only said, It has been a most pleasant day. I spent it strangely, said Falconer. Here the candles were brought in. The two men looked at each other full in the face. Hugh saw that he had not been in error. The same remarkable countenance was before him. Falconer smiled. 
we have met before said he we have said hugh i had a conviction we should be better acquainted but i did not expect it so soon are you a clairvoyant then not in the least or perhaps being a scotchman you have the second sight i am hardly celt enough for that but i am a sort of a seer after all from an instinct of the spiritual relations of things i hope not in the least from the nervo-material side i think i understand you are you at leisure entirely had we not better walk then i have to go as far as somerstown no great way and we can talk as well as walking as sitting with pleasure answered hugh rising will you take anything before you go a glass of port it is the only wine i happen to have not a drop thank you i seldom taste anything stronger than water i like that but i like a glass of port too come then and falconer rose and a great rising it was for as i have said he was two or three inches taller than hugh and much broader across the shoulders and hugh was no stripling now he could not help thinking again of his old friend david elginbrod to whom he had to look up to find the living eyes of him just as now he looked up to find falconers but there was a great difference between those organs and the two men david's had been of an ordinary size pure keen blue sparkling out of cerulean depths of peace and hope full of lambent gleams when he was loving any one and ever ready to be dimmed with the mists of rising emotion all that hugh could yet discover of falconer's eyes was that they were large and black as night and set so far back in his head that each gleamed out of its caverned arch like the reversed torch of the greek genius of death just before going out in night either the frontal sinus was very large or his observant faculties were peculiarly developed they went out and walked for some distance in silence hugh ventured to say at length you said you had spent the day strangely may i ask how in a condemned cell in newgate answered falconer i am not in the habit of going to such places but the man wanted to see me and i went as falconer said no more and as hugh was afraid of showing anything like vulgar curiosity this thread of conversation broke nothing worth recording passed until they entered a narrow court in somerstown are you afraid of infection falconer said not in the least if there be any reason for exposing myself to it that is right and i need not ask if you are in good health i am in perfect health then i need not mind asking you to wait for me till i come out of this house there is typhus in it i will wait with pleasure i will go with you if i can be of any use there is no occasion it is not your business this time so saying falconer opened the door and walked in said hugh to himself i must tell this man the whole story and with it all my own in a few minutes falconer rejoined him looking solemn but with a kind of relieved expression on his face the poor fellow is gone said he ah what a thing it must be mr sutherland for a man to break out of the choke damp of a typhus fever into the clear air of the life beyond yes said hugh adding after a slight hesitation if he be at all prepared for the change 
where a change belongs to the natural order of things said falconer and arrives inevitably at some hour there must always be more or less preparedness for it besides i think a man is generally prepared for a breath of fresh air he did not reply for he felt that he did not fully comprehend his new acquaintance but he had a strong suspicion that it was because he moved in a higher region than himself if you will still accompany me resumed falconer who had not yet adverted to hugh's object in seeking his acquaintance you will i think be soon compelled to believe that at whatever time death may arrive or in whatever condition the man may be at the time it comes as the best and only good that can at that moment reach him we are perhaps too much in the habit of thinking of death as the culmination of disease which regarded only in itself is an evil and a terrible evil but i think rather of death as the first pulse of the new strength shaking itself free from the old mouldy remnants of earth garments that it may begin in freedom the new life that grows out of the old the caterpillar dies into the butterfly who knows but disease may be the coming the keener life breaking into this and beginning to destroy like fire the inferior modes or garments of the present and then disease would be but the sign of the salvation of fire of the agony of the greater life to lift us to itself out of that wherein we are failing and sinning and so we praise the consuming fire of life but surely all cannot fare alike in the new life far from it according to the condition but what would be held to one will be quietness and hope and progress to another because he has left worse behind him and in this the life asserts itself and is but perhaps you are not interested in such subjects mr sutherland and i weary you if i have not been interested in them hitherto i am ready to become so now let me go with you with pleasure as i have attempted to tell a great deal about robert falconer and his pursuits elsewhere i will not here relate the particulars of their walk through some of the most wretched parts of london suffice it to say that if hugh as he walked home was not yet prepared to receive and understand the half of what falconer had said about death and had not yet that faith in god that gives as perfect a peace for the future of our brothers and sisters who alas have as yet been fed with husks as for that of ourselves who have eaten bread of the finest of the wheat and have been but a little thankful he yet felt at least that it was a blessed thing that these men and women would all die must all die that spectre from which men shrink as if it would take from them the last shivering remnant of existence he turned to for some consolation even for them he was prepared to believe that they could not be going to worse in the end though some of the rich and respectable and educated might have to receive their evil things first in the other world and he was ready to understand that great saying of schiller full of a faith evident enough to him who can look far enough into the saying death cannot be an evil for it is universal End chapter fifty four